Nine minutes it is before 8 p.m. It's our wrap of the top business stories here on Metro FM Talk. And uh, Nolwantlim Tombeni, market analyst, joins me uh, to help us take a look at some of the big stories in the world of money. Uh, Nolwantlim, good evening to you and welcome. Hi, I'm Mungunjani. Mungunjani. Good, good, good. What do you make, Nolwantlim, of uh, Ralph Mupita's uh, first uh, set of numbers as the uh, CEO at the helm of uh, yeah, Africa's largest uh, telecoms player, MTN? Uh, which uh, added 29 million customers, uh, strong showing for their mobile money or Momo offering, uh, but uh, quite cautious on that dividend. Yes, so these were quite a strong set of results. If you look at most of the metrics, everything is positive. Service revenue is up double digits. Data revenue is up double digits. HIPS is up 50% and operating free cash flow, which is very important as far as the business generating cash, was up over 100%. Um, so all the actual metrics are showing this were just positive and good and was a strong result. And then it's appointment that they're sustain, suspending the dividend. Yeah, so that part was a disappointment. Considering disappointment, that it's, why? it's encountered... I mean, why would you be... Do you not buy the story of all of the sort of uh, factors that they flagged that would have made them cautious about the dividend? I mean... You know, the repatriation of profit issue from Nigeria, third wave potentially of the COVID-19 issue. Um, you, you, you don't buy that? I don't buy it because, you know, Rolf has been in, in, you know, he was CFO at a time when the business was clawing out of Nigeria problems. And there was a point in time when where MTN was facing repatriation problems from both Nigeria and Iran and performance was bad. They were losing, um, they were losing, um, customer customer numbers there. They had to close a lot of accounts, and even then, when it came to resuming dividends, they they prioritized it and and were very good at at least guiding and bring bringing back cash to to investors. So I don't think this is about any sort of caution. I think he's stepping into a role of CEO. Um, you know, he's just come from CFO, so he's very big about the numbers. And I think he's just trying to make sure that, you know, it's a very clean slate as he comes through. And that I think what he's doing is making sure over the next couple of years, he can meet expectations that he sets out. Um, you know, typically, you know, they'll previously they would have guided, like, for example, seven rand in dividends will be what we can expect for the year. And, you know, they've been very good at meeting whatever the guidance is. So I think he's just making this the, the, the cut now so that when he steps into, you know, resuming dividends again, if he sets out a guidance, he needs it. I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, you know, the repatriation or whatever. We can see as far as all the economies everywhere, there's a recovery in terms of, you know, gener- revenue generation and, you know, customer growth. So it doesn't really, and even debt levels have come down. So the caution, I think, is unwarranted, considering mm-hmm. all the signs show to improvement, improve conditions and telcos being beneficiaries of, yeah. you know, lockdown. But I guess also, I mean, you know, take a wait-and-see approach also in their home market where the debate around uh, the rollout of, uh, you know, high-frequency spectrum is also, you know, the other question. Um, but what do you make of the suggestion that they made that, look, if they f- see things clearing up, they, you know, might announce a special dividend or buy back some of their shares? So they're saying that because they know that they have to do that. Um, I think, you know, you have to sort of manage expectations. So it's not like the cash is not there to pay the dividends. They're just being cautious. Um, and that's why they're saying probably that, you know, you can expect a special dividend there. 
you can't go to the market and you know put those kind of expectations out there um and then go and disappoint them especially with mtn giving the you know the bad sentiment around the stock given the mismanagement of foreign operations so they are basically saying look we're going to put pause on this you know build up some cash get things down but we will recompensate you for your waiting with a special dividend or buyback if the situation was as dire as they make it seem in terms of you know china managed it they wouldn't be saying there might be a special dividend later so the board has really discussed well we're probably going to just you know top up later to make up for this because there has to be cash available for you to now putting it out there that there's going to be a special dividend yeah hey i guess uh, the optics and the communication of it all uh, mm. yeah it's always the it's always the case because i guess it, uh, it's not just about perceptions but also has material implications i guess for the directions of uh, the movements and the share price but let's shift our attention to growth point and um i guess i you know i find it interesting always at this point when i look at some of the landlords um and uh, some of those in the um, sort of property and real estate uh, uh, sector um who have uh, i guess really battled with um with the situation with covid-19 uh, i mean we saw even i guess a shift on the part of how much of their distributable income uh, they in essence pay out in the case of uh, many of these players uh, but um, i guess a relatively good showing here for growth point total revenue up 12.5% double digit growth uh, operating profit increasing by 8.5% to around 4.4 billion uh, and they also saw uh, the headline earnings per share rising as well just over 5% Yes, so growth point in terms of the REIT and the REIT environment and the REIT sector, they have been, you know, the the kind of star amongst many of the African REITs because they've actually just had a stronger balance sheet. In fact, they were able to do a rights issue towards the end of last year, um, which many of the REITs couldn't because, you know, in terms of appetite for it is probably low. Also, the share prices have sold out a lot. But the portfolio of growth point is quite strong. and you can see in terms of their numbers that there has been you know a recovery in terms of the tenants and tenants are now resuming payment to the point where actually there was actually some top line growth so it is you know good surprise that they still be able to have some sort of growth if at all because we know for many for many people that are exposed to the consumer many businesses that are exposed to consumer yes there's a recovery but from a top line perspective they're not necessarily able to beat the revenue they generated from the same time last year especially in the second, second second half of the year so we're seeing some you know from a top line perspective but there's still some challenges because the vacancies are are still up um you know when you go to renewal you when they had to renew leases with certain tenants um you know it's still seeing about 68% and they still have to the rental reversions are down in instance in some cases they have to renew at a lower rate in terms of what the escalation is going to be. So it's still a tough environment, but I think Growth Point has navigated very well, has a strong portfolio and it's coming through in terms of the results. Mm, mm, mm. And and you know, I mean when you look at a player like uh, a Growth Point, um and you compare them normally to some of the other REITs um in the marketplace, uh what kind of I guess conclusions do you arrive at? So they've are some have diversification in their portfolio which is very strong. I think if you are, you know, many of the, you know, as much as, you know, they're in retail and there's many others in retail, if you also, you know, are limited to one segment or one segment of the market, it it becomes a challenge. 
So I think being able to diversify, not just geographically, but you know, also in terms of the the, the segment types, you know, be it office or retail and logistics, it does help. So those kind of factors, and I think if you look into the business, you know, diversification always has a benefit. You know, it's long said, you know, don't put your eggs in one basket, but it does create a more resilient portfolio. And I think also, even within a certain segment, even diversification within your actual portfolio where you are at, um, and not, you know, be concentrated in one segment, one sort of consumer, one area, uh, does make a difference. Yeah, and I, I guess, I mean, if we're talking about, you know, the tough times uh, people are experiencing, no doubt uh, municipalities finding themselves uh, in a similarly tight environment. On the one hand, transfers, as we would have seen in the budget, uh, uh, both of a conditional and unconditional nature, set to decline somewhat. Um, and then in addition to that, many of their customers, you and me, lost our jobs, um, unable to pay, pay those, uh, you know, water and lights bills. Um, and it certainly has many going about, I guess, with unfunded budgets, uh, which uh, means what, Nolan? Yes, so it's been a yeah, it's been a very tough time for municipalities, especially since you know they have to co- do a lot of collections, and it has put their finances under strain. As a result, you know they are also having to you know come up with budgets for the municipalities. I mean, to you know to the, the national treasury. And at many times, their expenses exceed their revenue. The problem is, is that you know municipalities are still very much reliant on rates and taxes and grants from government. And no, 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 no very few municipalities take on the effort of diversifying or finding their own form of revenue streams somehow, which is a problem. So being reliant on that you know, one source of income and also not having it be efficient in terms of being able to collect it means that once times get tough and continues under pressure, um, you're going to bear the brunt of it and you will have no way out of it other than increasing the deficit and increasing your your your, your reliance on government and you can't get yourself out of it. And I guess all of this happens at a time where, you know, Uh, There are certain services that people should be getting that uh, are no doubt essential. I mean, you know, water during this moment of COVID-19, a critical part of uh, the precautionary measures. Um, And, uh, you know, if if we see where the trend of equitable share is going, I mean, many of these municipalities have very little uh, sort of own revenue that they raise uh, in the context of the many very poor and depressed areas that we have. Um, It certainly does make, I guess, the picture of uh, the economic recovery and the turnaround, um, you know, a lot less or a lot more gloomy if, if we consider what it looks like at a local level, which is where the recovery is expected to happen. No, definitely. But I mean, I think, I don't think it's, it can always be a case of, you know, it's it's always a, the, you know, the poor areas, you know, they can't have any sort of revenue. I mean, you could easily just, you know, it's obviously not now in COVID environment times, but if you have an event and you, you know, people like events, even poor people, so-called poor people will spend an event and you can generate revenue. So I don't like the narrative that in poor areas, mm, people aren't no, able to no do no anything. No if, if we look at the numbers, um, so if you look, for instance, at, let's compare two municipalities, Oartambo in the Eastern Cape and Eteguin. Um, those two municipalities don't have the same economic base. Um, Eteguini is able to generate a lot more of its own revenue 
based on the, its own economic profile. But if you go to the middle of you know, uh, some of the most rural places where there's no industry, really no jobs to speak of, people are reliant on social grants, um, I mean, and then you still have to still deliver the services, it does make it, uh, I mean, a lot more difficult to raise the type of revenue that would even allow you to, to charge cost-reflective tariffs, let alone even charge people who are getting free basic services. Yes, and indeed, those are and those are very two very those two big extreme examples, right? I mean, Etugan is a huge municipality, um, and it's but if you go to KZN within itself, if you go more inland, there are so-called rural more rural areas only because they're not part of the big metro that are able to. So you will have those on the you know the very extreme side where it's not possible, but there's you know there's municipalities in between that can do something. And just because they're not part of the big metros now, they you know yeah. get grouped in with the more rurals, which is sure. not necessarily how it should be. So yeah, I mean, I think the point I'm making, uh, mm. you know, is that even the ability to raise that revenue is strongly influenced by the type of economic base that you have. Uh, no, so even the, the rural is. ones, even in places like the Eastern Cape, who are able to raise that that own revenue, uh, also happen to have some industry, some activity, and I guess better economic outcomes than maybe uh, the example I was making of Oar Tambo. Um, but, but it does raise an, uh, maybe a, a bit of a bigger issue, uh, Nulwandle, which is what then happens to capital investment and the state of some capital assets that are needed to deliver services. I mean, I, I would think that, you know, even in the tough environment, you still need to maintain your water treatment plants, you still need to maintain some of your substations. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's initiatives that can be done, you know, in those municipalities where, you know, Find investments, bring in, bring in, do something to make that environment to grow it, and find people to come in to partner with you to improve the lives of the people. Because if you, as a municipality, and you are in a, in a say, a rural, very rural area, and your only, you think your only purpose is to provide water and electricity, then you're not doing enough. There's more you can do. So from that perspective, in terms of empowering the communities, surely there should be certain projects that can be done to bring in more revenue, even if it's just to, for the main goal just to empower and to bring, provide more services and opportunities, those are the kind of things we should be looking at. I think the function of municipality just providing basic services is a very small, narrow, small scope, but even in rural areas, let's start thinking about how can we get these to be more vibrant communities, provide more services, have more investment, mm. bring in new players. That's how we should be yeah. thinking. And also, I guess, think about new ways to deliver some of these services because, you know, I think uh, that that's the other dimension that, you know, uh, these these are not like-for-like -like comparisons of places and probably even the issues of density make it very costly to provide some of these services. Yes, in some definitely. Places. Yeah. But, but let's, let, let's take a look at something else, um, you know, uh, in relation to these municipalities, uh, talking about new revenue sources. They're hoping that they're going to be able to get, uh, I guess, a, a piece of the pie from some of the embedded generation and self-generation projects uh, linked to the uh, independent power producers. Yeah, so I think this, you know, you know, fits right in with what we're saying in terms of trying to find alternative, you know, revenue sources. But this seems quite, you know, punitive to consumers because ultimately what you're saying is, you know, we, we get our money from ESCOM and if someone else is taking ESCOM's place, then we should get money from them as well. But I think you should not be, you know, and trying to actively take money from people who are, you know, generating their own source of, of energy. I mean, 
I think they the municipalities. I think I'm not sure what the group's name was that they that suggested this is that basically you know if someone is yeah is, Salga, is, you know, Salga, which yeah, is um, uh, like the body for all the councillors. Yes, they think that they should be also getting their share on any you know self self created um, energy, which which is it's it's punitive to your consumer because every time someone just makes their own energy source, it takes away from the grid. It reduces pitch from the grid. So you kind of been counterproductive, very counterproductive, and it also says that you're not trying to do anything to to generate other forms of revenue. You've been given this the form from ESCOM and you're taking it, and you you're not going to do any work. Just keep on charging more fees to people, which I don't think is going to be a good outcome in the in the long run. Yeah, we'll certainly have to follow how that one unfolds. But um, yeah, I don't know how, uh, I guess, uh, you know, where the regulatory framework would look around that. Because, you know, if people um, are generating for themselves, I mean, in a mine or something like that, um, it, it might complicate this whole agency fee type arrangement that um, uh, many of these folk are talking about. But Nolwantli, we'll have to leave it there. As always, a pleasure catching up with you. And thank you very much for sharing your time and insights with us. My pleasure. Nolwantli a market analyst, helping us with our wrap of the top business stories there. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we continue uh, taking a look at this issue of uh, the licensing of high-demand spectrum.